0: Chapter 3. I love this book because you get a lot of insight into what Paul had to deal with with some of the churches that he planted. Because if you read the book of Acts and you see him planting churches and going to these different towns, you think, wow, you know, church planning is easy. He just goes from town to town, it's easy, it just pops up, it goes, and then he leaves. It's like, you know, it's like making popcorn in the microwave, you know, set it and forget it. You know, the old rotisserie machine where they, they cook chickens. But the reality is, is if you know anything about people, uh, where there's more people, there's usually more problems. You know, I, I know lots of young people that say, well, if I was just in a relationship, then my life would be simpler and easier and it would be a blessing. Uh, but the reality is, as many times, what you find is when you have two people instead of one, there's more problems, there's more issues, there's more, more conflict. And so Paul is going through this with the with the Corinthian church. He's got this group of believers that he spent 18 months with. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. And as he spent 18 months with them, it doesn't mean that they were doing great after he left. It means that God called him to go somewhere else. And then the work that was in Corinth continued to grow. And so that's the hope, that's the prayer for every church, that each church that God plants his word in as the foundation, that it would come to maturity. But we remember from the last couple of weeks that the Corinthian church had some uh, divisions and had some arguments going on. It was actually at the point that there might be a church split. And so the household of Chloe had sat down as a group and they'd written down this letter explaining basically the problems they were having with the church. To tell Paul so that he could come back perhaps and and deal with some of the trouble issues, the troubled people as it might have been. And so Paul... He, instead of getting up and leaving, he's there in Ephesus. He sits down in a man's house and he starts penning this heated letter. He's going to write a letter of correction. He's going to correct them because he loves them. Many times people believe that, well, if you love me, you'll just let me do what I do. But Paul loves them enough to get involved. And he doesn't just get involved by just showing up and yelling at them. He gets involved by, number one, praying for them. And you'll see that throughout this letter, his... He explains how he's been praying for them, but also he wants to speak words into their lives. He wants to speak the teaching of God. He wants to give them wisdom, not the wisdom that they've been drawing from the culture around them, but the wisdom that comes from Jesus Christ, the foundation, the grounds on which the church is based. And so Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he confronts them. He's already explained to them that there are divisions, and he knows about them. Sometimes we have to tell our kids, hey, I know that you're having problems. You know, I know your grades aren't good. Or I know you've been arguing with your sibling or whatever the thing might be. But now he's going to address the issues that are causing the problems. I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to deal with the symptoms. When we see problems in relationships, in groups, at our workplace, we want to address the symptoms. But symptoms only show that there's a deeper issue. And so Paul says there's disunity, there's division in your church. We need to address the problems that are causing it. You know, when you rip weeds out of a garden, if you just rip the top of it off, that weed's going to grow back and it's still going to draw nutrients from all the things you actually want to grow. And so Paul says, let's deal with the issue. And the issue is an issue of the heart. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he continues this week explaining one of the main issues that they have. He says in verse 1, he says, and I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual people but as to carnal as to babes in Christ he's telling them i i taught you the word of god i fed you the word of god and he says to them he calls them he addresses them as brethren so he's not talking about people that don't believe in the lord that don't that haven't been born again if you remember from 1 corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 He said this, he says, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned or perceived. So to that particular verse, he's speaking to non-believers. He's speaking about non-believers. But in this verse, he's talking about the church, people that have been born again. And he says about them, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people. He says, but... As to carnal, well, what does that word mean, carnal? Uh, many times Paul will refer to in this letter to carnal Christians. If you've ever heard that term, perhaps it's confused you or maybe you know what it means. So I looked it up. The word carnal means not spiritual, which makes sense in the verse there. He says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as the carnal. So it's contrasting opposites of each other. But he, but carnal means not spiritual, but fleshly. Not A natural man who's not been born of the spirit, but a a man who has been born again or a woman who has been born again. But they are immature Christians. They're babes in Christ. And we get that from the context, too, not just from the definition. But if you look there in verse two, he says that he says, because I couldn't speak to you as mature Christians or fully developed would be the word. He says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Now, who do we feed Milk. Well, we just gave this announcement, we're going to have a baby. When this baby is born, we won't just start cutting up cube steak and feeding it to him or her, will we? We'll feed her milk. That milk has all the proteins and the vitamins and everything that that baby needs. But at a certain point, you have to grow past milk, because though milk will sustain you, it doesn't grow all the muscles as much as eating some protein, and some bread, and some vegetables. They have to be solid foods. But you can't eat those until you become mature. You have to cut your teeth. Well, that's the problem they're experiencing. These people have been born again, but they're not maturing. They're they're developmentally challenged. Um, I've heard lots of people say, "Well, I can't help it. I was born this way. Whether it was with a sinful appetite or a sinful behavior, you know, or or with some sort of uh, you know propensity to do something that they're not supposed to. They go, well, I." I can't help it. I'm just born this way. Well, I want to say something that's kind of interesting. Each one of us was born not going to the bathroom in the potty. Each one of us was born not able to control ourselves, and so they got something called diapers. But if that person becomes 12 years old, and they're still wearing a diaper, what do we think? Something's wrong. Something's unhealthy. They haven't learned. They haven't matured to the point where they can control themselves. And the same is true... For Christians, we can in many ways hinder our own growth by not seeking the Lord. But how does that growth come? How do we deal with this issue of immaturity? Because I think most Christians, and I say that and it sounds bad, but I think most Christians spend their entire life immature, not grown, not developing spiritually. They attend to their physical needs all the time. And you can tell that by the way that they handle themselves, by the hand, way they handle relationships. But they attend to the spiritual last. And what Jesus said is, man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word of God. So we as Christians have been born again to a living hope. So our, our perspective ought to be, before I handle or fulfill my physical needs, I always ought to deal with my spiritual first. Because if you feed the spiritual nature more than you feed the fleshly nature, the spirit will always win the war against the flesh. But if you spend all of your time, or most of your time even, feeding the flesh, when you're called to submit to a commandment of God or follow Him in His ways, the flesh is always going to win over. You're going to be defeated, ruled over, mastered by your physical body. Now we've been born again, but we're still surrounded by this body of flesh and it has appetites and if you feed it all the time what you'll find is that your spirit it will kind of it won't revert but it won't grow it'll be stunted and so Paul's dealing with this and he says to them you need to grow up here's one of the major problems you need to grow in maturity but how do we do that so I I have a quote here from Alan Redpath he was uh I don't know if he was a pastor, but he was a Christian writer for sure. And he said this, he said, the carnal Christian is a child of God. He's been born again. He said, born again and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling in third class. The Lord has offered to us first class. Have you guys ever flown? How many of you guys have not flown? Well, you don't have to raise your hand, but like if you've ever flown, you get on the plane and in the front of the plane, there's obviously the stewardess and there's cockpit. And there's people greeting you and making sure you don't hit your head. Zach, not me. And as, we're walking, as you're walking on the plane, you walk through this section and it's like, man, this is nicer than my house. And they got recliners and they got drink holders and they've got you know, little pillows. You don't even have to bring your own. And you're just like, man, I hope the whole plane's like this. And then you keep walking and you get to where your seat is. If you're like me and you're like, we're going to be on this plane for 20 hours and that's where I'm sitting, I'm literally closer to the next person than I ever even sleep next to my own wife. There's not enough room and I'm small. I feel bad for guys that are big, normal size, that can't (laughs) fit on the plane. But many of us as Christians don't realize this. God wants to transport us to heaven in first class. Now, I'm not talking about the lap of luxury. I'm talking about... The closeness of his presence, the warmness of sitting in his lap. He wants us to just enjoy being able to ask him questions and to grow and cause him to challenge us and be stretched in our faith in him. But many times we're like, "You know what? I'd rather sit in third class because back there I can smoke, or whatever. Whatever your thing is, I'm not saying smoking is sin. I'll just you know just the idea is we, we pick second best. And then we pick third best. Next thing you know, we're not even sitting in the front row anymore. And the Lord's like, I want you close to me because that's where you're going to grow the best. And so I love that quote from Alan Redpath. But then uh, another guy that I read uh, by the name of David Guzik, he said, you get a portrait of a carnal Christian that can be seen in Romans 7, a personal, excuse me, a person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but who is mastered by his flesh. He is ruled over by his own carnal desires, his immature desires. And so Paul treats them like immature believers. He says, you're immature, so I treated you that way. But not so you would stay that way, just so you could take what I had to offer you until you would grow. So he feeds them milk, it says in verse two, and not solid food. He does this so they will grow. He did this because they were not able to receive the solid food. He did this because they weren't ready for it yet. And he did this because he loved them. He didn't just say, well, you're not growing, so never mind. I'm not going to give you anything. He fed them anyway. He was long-suffering. He was patient with them. But so that they would grow. You see, they had this habit, this appetite for junk food. They didn't have an appetite for good food. You ever try to go on a diet and you're like, I don't like any of this food. I've done that. You know, there are certain foods where I'm like, if it tastes bad, it's probably good for you. If it tastes wonderful, it's probably horrible for you. Give me the horrible. But spiritually, we do the same thing. We've gotten so used to feeding our flesh with the things of this world, with the appetites. We want to be entertained. And so we entertain ourselves with things that are, it's not so bad, but it's right on the edge. We don't realize that when we do that, we're robbing ourselves spiritually. Because when we, then we want to sit down and we want to read the word. And we're like, this is, this is Greek to me. And we're reading the English version. And, and so the, the thing that Paul tells them is, I, I did feed you, but I, I fed you the milk so that you would be able to grow until you got to the meat stage. But you're not to the meat stage yet. What's your deal? And if we realize that just this little baby, Lucy, if she's not hungry, what do we think about it? She's not hungry. She's probably sick. And we don't think about that as Christians. If we're not hungry for the word of God, if we're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness like Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, Matthew chapter 5. If we don't have an appetite for the Lord, we got to realize we're probably eating a lot of junk food that's that's fulfilling us and, and then leaves and that we're 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 glutted on things that aren't healthy. And so, this is a common theme in Scripture. And so, I'm going to turn with you to Hebrews chapter five because in Hebrews chapter five, uh, this is an, it's it's an issue even then. And the writer of Hebrews tells us the cure to us being spiritually immature. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, he says this. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone now to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The idea of immaturity. Verse 14, he says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use, if you're one of those that has the liberty to underline things in your Bible, I think that's important. Underline reason of use, who by reason of use have their senses exercised, To discern or perceive both good and evil. To tell the difference between what's right and wrong, we have to do that by the exercising or the use of the word of God. Now, many times people are like, well, I don't see its use. That's because you haven't tried to use it. You know, take just a little snippet of what you read in a day, even if it's one chapter, one verse and say, Lord, how can I apply this today? Because as you try to apply it, what you'll find out is it's like exercising. You pick up the weights and you use them. And at first you're like, I don't even know how to use this thing. If you're like me in a weight room, you don't know how to use most weights. But when you start lifting them, you find out that there's these muscles that get sore and they get broken and then they get healed and they, they get stronger. And as we exercise faith in the Lord and we trust his word, his promises, we put to practice the things he's taught us to do what we'll find is we'll be strengthened and we'll exercise our faith and we'll come to maturity and we won't even realize it. It'll happen overnight. And so in the same thing that Paul's trying to teach the Corinthians, he's trying to teach these, who, uh, or the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach those who are the Jewish Christians, he's saying, you guys are still struggling with the beginning stuff, but you haven't grown up to maturity. And it's because you're simply not putting to practice what God's showing you in his word. And so back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we continue on in verse 3. He says, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You guys are, are growing, you're in the faith. And you're, you're proving to each other how much you're in the faith by telling who you listen to or who you don't listen to. And, and they were all, you know, we may not be like this, but they had certain guys that, they, I'm only listening to Paul because he came here and he started the church. Or I'm only listening to Apollos because he's a wonderful speaker. And what they were doing, it, it wasn't so much that those guys were bad, but what he's going to point out is these guys are just messengers from God. If you want to boast about anybody that's teaching the Word of God... Boast in your God, because if they've been used at all, it's just a sign that God can use anybody. You know, God spoke through a donkey in the book of Numbers. He can speak through any donkey, even me, even Apollos, even Paul. God is using these instruments, and they were boasting about the instruments. Can you imagine if you got out of a surgery and you just had something removed or something fixed surgically, and and you went and you were like, I want to speak to the scalpel, and thank that scalpel for helping me be healed. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd thank the doctor. You'd thank the surgeon. But here's the reality. God doesn't just use a scalpel to do surgery on us. Many times he uses broken people. He uses a rusty, dull blade and still gets the same work accomplished. How much more can God be glorified when he uses us at all? And so Paul says, you guys are immature if you're going to point to us and, and, and say, hey, look what Paul did in my life. He's saying, that's immature. You need to recognize that Paul didn't do it. It was God who was working through him. And so he continues there in verse 4, excuse me, verse 5. He said, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? He says, through whom you believed, not by whom you believed, but through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. He says, I planted, speaking of himself, Paul, and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The idea is this. I'm going to give uh, an example that is very close and dear to me. I didn't till up my garden. You know who did? Richard Tedford. He brought over his tiller, and he put that thing to the ground, and he started tilling the yard. Until we had a spot that was dirt broken up. I didn't do it. And then my wife came along and she planted some plants. And my neighbor gave us a tomato plant. Now, this year wasn't a good garden year, no matter how you planted, We got a deluge of rain. We got cool weather. All kinds of craziness going on. But what happened is there was fruit produced in that garden. Now, obviously, I could thank Richard because he was one of the ones that plowed up the soil. And I can... You know, say, well, I'm going to thank Richard and not my wife who planted it. But Richard planted it. My wife planted or Excuse me, he, he tilled it. My wife planted it. My neighbor brought a plant that he had nursed from a baby and we planted it in the ground. But who grew the plants? God did, because I don't know how to. It's not like we knew exactly what to do. We know how to put it in the ground. And we know to break the ground up. We know to fertilize it. We know to do all these things. But God ultimately is the one that makes plants grow So what Paul's saying is, though I planted, I didn't water it. Apollos did. But either one of us doing those things, we were just doing it to be faithful to what God had called us to do as ministers of the gospel. And So who brought the increase? It was God himself. He says, so don't be mature. You've got to realize who is the one actually doing the work. He says there, I planted, but Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says, So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, they work in unity. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So there's a principle in the church. We all work together But we're all rewarded individually for what we do, what we accomplish. But it's not really even about what we accomplish. It's about being faithful. Sometimes we want something that shows a direct result. We want to be out front. We want to be the one that goes and picks the fruit off the vine. But sometimes we're the one that plows. We don't ever even see any of the fruit. Sometimes we're the one that scattered the seed into the ground. But what Paul says is whether we're called to do the planting or the plowing, or the watering, the reality is is that the fruit that comes forth, it's not for us, it's for the Lord. It's all to be offered up to Him as a a pleasing aroma, as something that gives glory to Him. When we eat that fruit from the vine, we're excited because all the people got to be involved. We got some tomatoes and we'll have some BLTs, but the reality is we'll be thankful for each of the people that was involved, but really it's all thankfulness to God who used them. And so Paul says this same thing. He says, we all work together in accord as we're faithful to what God's called us to do. And we will all be rewarded for what we did on an individual basis as we trusted the Lord by faith. Many people undermine what God is doing because they give glory to the individual that God used to do it. And if you ever hear or read anything by Billy Graham, what he always does is he gives glory to the Lord for everything that God's done. Because he recognizes he's just a weak man, just like anybody else. Paul, at the end of his life, he's like, according to the grace of God, he used me. And so we, in the same manner, we need to recognize. And in the Corinthian church, what they didn't recognize is they were giving glory to someone who didn't really do the work. They were giving glory to the instrument and not to the one who used it. Verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers, we all work together And you are God's field. You are God's building. And so he transitions from this idea of the church, the the body of believers as a, a group of God's building or God's field that's growing, this harvest he's raising up. And he transitions and he talks to them about God's building. According to the grace of God, he says, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. So Paul saw himself as a foundation layer, as a, someone who pours footings. Now, how many people actually look at footings and go, wow, what marvelous footings they poured? Not many. But what he does is he says, I laid the foundation. That was my, that was my call. That was my, what I was supposed to do. I wasn't supposed to put on the veneer or the siding. I wasn't supposed to build the walls. All I was supposed to do was be faithful to pour foundations and then to move to a different place and pour a foundation. But what is that foundation? Is it concrete? Is it rock? Is it uh, gravel? Is it any material? No, the foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation was, was the person of Christ. A foundation is something that you build on that hopefully won't be moved. And if somebody builds their life on something that's movable, what's going to happen to the house is it's not going to have any integrity. It's not going to last. He says, though, he says, my call was to build the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. See, here's what Paul did. He came to these towns and he laid the foundation for a church to be built. Now, when I think of church planning, I don't think of, naturally, them building a building. What we can think of is, okay, I'm going to go here and start a church. And you're picturing, you know, you've got to pour concrete, you've got to build walls, and you've got to put a cross on the top with a steeple. But what he's saying is, I laid the foundation by presenting the foundation. I laid the foundation by preaching Christ, he's explained in the previous chapter, and Him crucified. There's no other foundation that we can lay our lives on that will stand the test of time. And so Paul says here, he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ himself. Verse 12, If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, and the day he's requiring he's calling upon there is not just the day, but he's talking about the day of the Lord, his return. The day of the Lord will declare what that building is made out of, is what he's saying. He says, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Did you know that what you do with what God has shown you, they're called works. And we've been over ad nauseum as we studied the book of Romans that our works cannot save us. But, in the same token, we will be rewarded based on our works. What we have done, out of the love of God, shed abroad on our hearts. And as we've received the love of God, as we've received His teaching, we are called to, likewise, take it and share it with others. Whatever God's called you to, He's called you to do it for His purposes. But here's the reality. We can take the foundation of Christ what he's given us, salvation for our souls, and we can build on it with any kind of material. He gives us freedom to do that. Uh, Materials like precious stones, silver, gold. Now, precious stones, he's not talking about jewelry like diamonds or, or topaz or something like that. What he's talking about is what we would consider very good precious stone, like granite. Granite's not cheap. People make their countertops out of it. They make foundations. They build entire homes out of it. So we can use different materials. And then in that same list, he says that we can use wood, hay, and stubble or straw. They did this in the day of in Egypt when they were building the, the different temples for the Egyptian king, the pharaoh. And at one time, what they did was they said, we want you to use this clay. And they would go out and they would cut up hay and they would stick it in there to kind of strengthen it a little bit. They do the same thing in concrete. They put fibers in it to make it more strengthened uh, to pull on. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that what we build our house on will be proved in the day of testing. It'll be proved in the day that God judges our works to see how we did them, how we built them. So here's the reality. We can build our lives on Christ. We can do things out of our love for the Lord and we can use the wrong materials. Paul says you can build on the foundation of Christ with the materials that God's given you, precious stones, silver and gold or you can build on the foundation of Christ with wood, hay and stubble. Now what are the things that will withhold the day of the trial by fire? Well the stones, right? The precious stones, silver and gold up to a certain point, they won't melt. Refined But wood, hay, and stubble, when subjected to fire, they won't withstand the test. And so, what is he saying here? Why, Why would he talk about these different materials that they could use? Well, the Corinthian church was building on the foundation of Christ, but some of them were using the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world will not stand for the test of time. The word of God will remain forever. It can be tested, it can be tried, and it will not be found faulty. But the wisdom of the world will always burn up. It will always perish if it's tested. He says there in verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There are things that we can allow into our lives and we can use to try to do the work of the Lord. And what he's saying here is sometimes we spend all of our time spinning our wheels trying to do the work of the Lord, but not doing it his way. And so because of that, it's a work that can be done in vain in eternity's perspective. God will still use it, but it won't necessarily go well for we won't get any reward for it. We'll be robbed. You know, and and he talks about this in different portions in scripture. And in Matthew chapter 7, and I've said this over and over again, he talks about the foundation. Matthew chapter 7 verse 24. He says there In verse 24 He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, this is Jesus speaking, and he does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. He says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So the difference is, is what materials are used. You can build your life on Christ, and your house can still fall because of the materials that you've used. And Paul has laid the foundation. The Corinthians, just like us today, have the opportunity to build on that foundation, who is Christ. What do we use to build? That's our decision. That's what has the Corinthians in such a jam. And they're using the wisdom of the world. And this is proven because there's brokenness in their house. But what I find interesting is that. As we've read several times. In the book of James. We see this difference between wisdom. He says that those that use the wisdom of the world. They'll, they'll founder. They won't flourish. They'll be immature. But what are some of the things that can be wood, hay and stubble? Well. We can look at our intentions, why we build our house. Our intentions will be proven when things are shaken, and the integrity of the building will be shown when different pressures are placed upon us. You know Do you continue to follow the Lord when your life isn't just so-so? Um, who we build for? Are we building for ourselves, or are we building for the glory of God? For His pleasure? That matters to God, our intentions. What we build, are we building his kingdom or are we building ours? Now, I struggle with this every week. Sometimes things come up and I'm just I'm like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? And he's saying to me, uh, you know, tribulation produces patience. Sometimes you need to build for my purpose. And sometimes that means that God's going to tear something out of your life. But all of these are examples. And I'm sure there are more of building with either wood, hand, stubble or with materials approved by God that will be able to stand. Paul talks about this a little bit more in 2 Corinthians. And obviously we'll get there when it's time. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, verse 10. He's talking about our works being judged. Verse 9. I said 10, but I meant verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He's reminding them, we're not trying to please you, Corinthians, we're trying to please the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, that's a strong word for fear, We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. He says, here's the thing, God wants you to build upon Christ, but he wants you to do it because you fear him, because you respect him, but because you're also afraid of what it will look like if you build your life using things, using intentions, using the ways of the world. And what the ways of the world will always produce is division and disunity in the church. And what was happening in the Corinthian church was they were all putting their own needs above others. They were all looking out for themselves and not for each other. And they weren't serving the kingdom of God, but they were serving their own desires. But here's the reality. Because there was so much distress and division in the Corinthian church, it forgot what its original purpose was. God has a purpose for the church. It's not so that we quarrel and forget about the rest of the world. It's not so we get in a holy huddle and forget about the rest of the world. God's intention for the church is to reveal His Son. And if people are all arguing and getting mad at each other about doctrinal issues or what Bible teacher they're listening to or what their church does versus another church, there's no unity. And God's love isn't proclaimed to the world. His judgments aren't proclaimed to the world. Our relationship with Him is not made manifest when we argue with one another. It's made manifest when we mature and are able to lift one another up. That's one of the reasons that I like the Bible study that we do in Cowboy Church. It's not because we agree on every particular doctrine. It's because there's unity among believers, and I've learned a lot from young guys. I've been spurred on to grow and mature in my faith. And there are things that they say that stretch me, and there are things that they say That I disagree with and then we talk about them and then we learn from one another. We press each other up. You know, it's kind of like you guys ever seen the the movie Forrest Gump? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not a clean movie. Uh, But in there you have Forrest Gump and you have Bubba. And Bubba and Forrest Gump are in the trenches together. They're serving in a platoon and they're in Vietnam. And one night, they're sitting there, and it's uh, doing what Bubba Gump called big old fat rain. Or maybe, maybe it was uh, Forrest Gump called big old fat rain. And uh, Bubba and, and uh, Forrest, they lean up against each other and say, Hey, why don't we lean up against one another? That way we don't have to sleep with our heads in the mud. And that's the reality. We are in the trenches as a church. We're not in heaven yet. And so the battle is very real. And sometimes we forget that God's given us each other to lean up against. And when one's faltering, the other one can make up for that weakness. But as we make up for each other's weaknesses, and as we lean on one another, we don't have to sleep with our heads in the mud. And the Lord, He realizes that we're in a world that is full of mud, dirtiness, impurity. And God wants us in the midst of this darkness. He wants us to mature. And sometimes we mature the most when we're discouraged, when we feel like there's no light shining through the world anyway, like all of us are getting defeated. And then when we get together periodically throughout the week, we're reminded that God's still on the throne. He's still fulfilling his purposes and we just need to keep our heads up and focus on him. And so the Corinthian church was forgetting that because they were all looking at each other going, you got this wrong with you and you got this wrong with you and I only follow this guy. And what the Lord is saying through the pen of Paul is here is, hey, get over yourselves. Christ is going to mature you. You need to stop looking at their faults and deal with the plank in your own eye. And as you'll do that, you'll start to love them despite their faults, despite their weaknesses. Because here's the reality is God chooses to reveal his glory to the world through our relationship with one another, through our unity. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, here's what he says. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says this. He says, and this is talking about someone who is uh, mature. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, not in your own strength, but in His, in sincere love of the brethren, you'll know the church because of their love for one another. That's what Jesus said. He says, love one another fervently with a pure heart having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. He says this, because all flesh is as grass, wood, hay, and stubble, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. He says the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It will stand the test of time. It is the silver, the gold, the precious stones that we can build on. He says, This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. He says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking, as newborn babes, he still calls them newborns, he says, Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, and if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, that He's gracious... Grow by partaking of the living, the, the milk of the word. Grow to the point of maturity so you will want the, the meat of the word. He says, but you have to first lay aside all malice and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. And then he says, as you do this, verse four, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also are the living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay it in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The idea is, if you will build your, your, your foundation, but then you continue to build your house, on him, Then in the day of judgment, not the judgment of whether you'll go to heaven or hell. He's talking about the, the day of judgment where God will, it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. And it was the idea in that day, they had the Olympics. They would walk up after the competition and the judges would judge each one according to what reward they would receive for the way that they contended in their race. In this race of faith that we're called the race... We play by the rules, but we run to win, not to get by, not just to finish, but to win. We will be all rewarded according to how we have run, not just that we run. And he says there, if you will build your your hope in Christ and you'll continue to build your lives on Christ, here's the reality, you will not be put to shame. So that will reveal to the world who we are. And he talks, he reveals and he talks about the temple. The temple was this ornate structure built out of stones and it was also covered in precious stones, topaz and and gold and silver. But the living temple that he's talking about is no longer a building. Where does God reside today to reveal himself to the world? He resides in you and I individually. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're taking this beautiful building that God's trying to grow and we're jamming it full of wood, hay, and stubble. The reality is underneath all the precious stones, they, they won't be seen by the world. All they'll see is our contentions with one another. And so I hope this morning you can see that it's not so much what's at stake as is, uh, is whether or not we're happy or not. What's at stake, the consequences of us using wood, hay, and stubble or the ways of the world to build our lives is that we'll have a saved soul but we'll have a wasted life. There won't be any rewards. And the cool thing about the rewards is we won't get them so we can just hoard them in our little room in heaven. The rewards that we'll have is we'll all one day have those rewards given to us and then we'll give them to Jesus. Kind of as a thank offering. Like, Lord, you did it all. Here you go. We'll cast them at his feet. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to be the only guy there that doesn't have anything to give to Jesus. Not because it makes me any more precious in his sight. I just I just want to say thank you. But the other consequence of, of not using what the Lord gives us to build his house is that uh, God's glory is at stake. The Lord won't be seen in our lives. Uh, it'll all be about us, and he won't be revealed to our lives. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Paul. Uh, we, I, I just thank you for the for the Corinthian church that was so full, full of failure and faults and problems and divisions because I find that my heart more times than not is divided because of my own self-will that I have yet to uh, give over to you. So Lord, this morning I just pray as we have read your word and as we've been faithful to be here, uh, no doubt each person has uh, things that they could be doing, but they've decided to to be here and, and assemble with one another Lord, I pray that we would be a group of Christians who would, in, in our individual lives, fully rely upon you and in our corporate life, Lord, that we would learn to bear with one another and to encourage one another and to lean up against one another and to learn from one another, so that the things that are in our lives, the things that we have blind spots to, uh, that you'd be able to remove those things delicately so that we can reveal you to the world, not just in our individual lives but through us as a, as a body of believers. Lord, bring us to maturity. Help us to get over ourselves in the ways that we need to. Um, Lord, we need to grow so that we can be able to partake of the spiritual solid food. Lord, help us to feed the Spirit and to starve the flesh so that uh, in the day of diversity and trial, uh, you'll be revealed to this world and to our friends and to our family members. Lord, Make yourself known among the people that we know. May Jesus be our boast. May he be the one, the banner over our heads. May people know you just by the way that we conduct ourselves. Lord, teach us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.